After seeing the play Sojourners at Playwrights Realm last year, I had to speak to its author, Mfoniso Udofia. And with some of my creative projects, I'll have a confession to make. I tend to to kind of be obsessive and have to get it perfect. And this was one of those instances where perfection was the enemy of good. So I had not had the opportunity to share this episode with everyone. Well, all good things come around again, and the play Sojourners and the play that's following Sojourners in the family cycle is premiering April 22nd at New York Theatre Workshop, directed by Ed Iskandar. And uh, here's my conversation with Umfoniso Udofia about the Ufot family cycle, specifically her play Sojourners. Enjoy. Hello, my guest today is Umfoniso Udofia. She is a playwright, an actress, and a teacher. Uh, her play Sojourners just closed at Playwrights Realm, mm-hmm. the Peter J. Sharp Theater. That's right. I wanted to speak with her because, for me personally, the play got me thinking about things I hadn't thought about in a very long time. What I'm a child of Nigerian immigrants, what it must have been like for them to have come to this country from Nigeria, and um, what that experience must have been like. And I'd never really sat with that before. And I found, during your play, tears started falling down my face, and I didn't really understand why. You are, in your work through Sojourners, and in your other work, really exploring questions of identity for groups of people that maybe have never really been represented in American theater so thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Of course. And can you tell me a little bit about how did Sojourners come to be? And I know it sits within a larger cycle of plays. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that cycle and Sojourners specifically? So I am I'm writing a series of nine plays. And Sojourners is the second play. However, I'm coming to find that numbers are an issue because I'm not writing in a linear fashion. Plays can, you can do play five or you can do play one. It doesn't matter. Um, For me, uh, Sojourners was the most difficult of the plays to write. Um, uh, Probably running a close second is Run, Boy, Run. Uh, when I first started Sojourners, I had called it Towards, because I knew that I was going towards something. Towards. Yes. Oh, like a direction. <laughs> yeah. Like a direction. Okay. But I didn't know what direction. This play, I started writing it in 2010. Tail end of 2009, really. And I was researching a lot on wandering spirits and um, what it is to drop down from the sky and say that I'm coming here to create something. I was reading a lot of Edwidge Danticott, and I was like, um, she says, and I'm going to paraphrase badly, that um, immigrants are the fiercest creators, um, the most amazing artists. And so I did start asking myself the question with Sojourners, what is love? What is creation within a paradigm that is not your own? And those two questions kept pinging back and forth for me. And uh, it's So called- what is love mm-hmm. and what is creation in a paradigm that is not your own? Yes, and probably flip those questions. So the first question is, what is creation within a paradigm that is not your own? And then from there, how does love react within that? It was difficult to write. It took me Four and a half years to do. So, so the the play cycle immediately for me mm-hmm. it brings up memories of August Wilson, of course, mm-hmm. sort of this large story, this sort of African American 
mm-hmm. story arc, right? So I, was it inspired by August Wilson? No. No? no? I know you must hear that a lot. <laughs> I, I do. And I have great and deep respect for August Wilson. When I started, I first started writing, the first play I ever wrote was The Grove. Okay. I wrote The Grove, and then I realized that I had more stories to tell within this family, but I couldn't do it within that one play. And that's when Towards or Sojourners came. Okay. Then you do that, and I was like, oh, but wait, I've short, short-changed the, the disciple character. Then comes Run, Boy, Run. And then all of a sudden, I'm writing a trilogy. So that was the first number that I had centered on, a trilogy. And then I was like, a trilogy is actually not enough. I think I'm writing a story on a creation story, an, an American mythology with Nigerians mm-hmm. in America, and I need more room. And so three became five. And then I was like, but they have children. And what is it when an African body um, realizes within America, it's an African-American body, and I must write their children, which is now going to be play six, seven, eight, nine. I believe I'm stopping at nine. Um, yes, I believe I'm stopping at nine. I'm going to put a period at, the at end nine. Of nine. <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, that's how it started. So I had no idea. I had no intention of writing a cycle. The they that we're referring to, we should say, is Abasiyama and Disciple. Mm -hmm. So that's where you first are going to meet Abasiyama and Disciple. Okay. So I started at the beginning. Yes. Yes. You started right at the beginning. So the the story is, I'll let you tell it, Mm -hmm. is sort of this Nigerian couple who Mm -hmm. are in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Who have just come from Nigeria to build their dreams. Yeah. That's Sojourners. They come, Houston, Texas. Houston was um, um, a, a part of a, a locale that had low tuition rates and um, there was lax immigration laws at the time. And so you had a Basiyama and Disciple. This was a port of entry. They go to Texas Southern University. They are studying in the hopes of maybe rebuilding Nigeria from the inside out. This is after the Biafran War. Mm-hmm. And uh, Abasiyama comes here in an arranged marriage with her husband, Upong, and this had been set up by their families. And Upong has fallen in love with America. Mm-hmm. He is um, enamored with an American dream, an American essence, and he's living, I think, for the first time, unbounded. Yeah. And Abasiyama is eight months pregnant and is following a very strict tracking system going come here we are ma- we are married first we come here we'll have a baby that baby will be a u.s citizen i will finish my degree we go back home if we don't finish rebuilding nigeria the baby's a u.s citizen and can come back and do the same mm. so she's on track she's on plan she's doing the work she's doing the work and so my parents came in the 70s mm-hmm. to study. So in many ways, that was like, oh, this, you know, and perhaps I was projecting. But, but you know, and I think the loneliness of Abbasiyama, I remember my mother, that's one thing she has always described to me, mm-hmm. was how lonely she was and how it was so hard for her to find food that she could relate to and eat. So there's, you know, the scene with the Pesquik, I just thought that was so, <laughs> like, that was my mother, you know. Mm-hmm. So did your parents come in the 70s as well? Like, when did they come here? I don't actually know the date that my parents got, the like exact year, but it was sometime in the 70s. Okay. And they came, they were, there was all sojourners, they were coming here to go to school. Okay. 
And um, I do think that this is a part of an immigrant narrative that Americans make, that immigrants come here with an intention to stay and siphon off the country. Uh, this is not true of many immigrants, and this is true of my people and the people that I write, that there was no actual intention of staying. Yeah. And my parents actually came for education and left. I mean, we moved back to Nigeria in 1982, mm -hmm. and with the intention really of never returning. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's this yeah. weird American narrative that goes, oh no, they're coming, they're coming, they're going to take over, when there's quite a few who are just coming to get a thing and then leave. leave. <laughs> well, because, because you give up so much in the coming, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what I loved about your work, is that it was one of the first plays that really articulated what is loss in the coming, mm -hmm. right? And like, you you know, Habasiyama does not want to give up these things. She no. doesn't want to lose these things. No. You know? Like, um, it is my mother who's like, we have our own food. We have our own music. I understand the land I come from. There's absolutely nothing wrong with my home. I'm coming here in order to understand there and go, hey, maybe there's something good I'll learn Take it and implement what is already pretty good. Yeah. It is no, there's no real desire to root when you already have a root. I thought it was very important for an American theater, uh, an audience, an American theater audience to understand that immigration is nuanced. And how do you feel like audiences have responded? <laughs> and critics, shall I say, have responded to this idea? Not well. It disrupts an idea that America is some kind of Gilead land of milk and honey. And that everybody wants to come. And so there are some people who are like, but I don't understand why they won't just stay. At the end of the play, Abasiyama leaves her baby to fulfill her dream of getting her education. And she's like, but why won't they just, why won't she stay with the baby in the country? Why, it, it can be enraging to some. You mean, why did she, because she ends up giving the baby to her husband who yes. is returning to Nigeria. Exactly, thank you. Hmm. So she's doing that in order to fill, fulfill the plan and then go back home. home. And there are people who are like, but why won't you just stay? Oh, why won't she, why is she giving her child why to her husband to take home? Why is she giving her child home? to the husband to take home? Why doesn't she stay in America with her baby? And people have actually come up to you after the play. And asked me. Wow. And I've been like, I, no, is it not better to send the baby back to a compound and a root and a people that will know her while her mother finishes her business of uh, attaining her education and then goes and rejoins her baby at that root. So there can be, there can be some misunderstanding. And I actually go good because um, that kind of discomfort means there's maybe learning that we can do. do. Yeah. Um, but what has been brilliant are um, first-generation immigrants from Nigeria to there was somebody from the Philippines and somebody from Cambodia. We're like, no, I understand that. I understand that completely. So it was so interesting, depending on the night, who was in the audience, what the response was to, to me when they found out I was a playwright. Mm -hmm. Someone like, I just don't understand. And then a lot of the immigrants were like, yeah, that's, that's true. I love my home. My heart broke for Abasiyama because the very last scene, we see her 
leave Hukpong, her husband, who I found delightful. I love him. He's such a I wonderful character. You know why I loved him? Because he was an African man who was free. Mm-hmm. He was. He made some poor choices in the course of the play, but he had a lightness to him. Mm-hmm. He loved Abasiyama. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we don't see African men like him very much. And when we do... They're kind of, and in, in some ways I felt like this play kind of treated him similarly in some way. Because, you know, the second act is sort of terrible. But, mm-hmm. I, but I loved that he was a free spirit. And he was living by his own desires. Yeah. I really love that. And, you know, in the second act he became a little bit of a villain. And it made me sad. Because Did I kind of, yes, because he, he left his wife who's pregnant and mm-hmm. disappeared. Yeah. And I said, you know, it was heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but there's something I loved, maybe I was a little in love with him too, about <laughs> this free African man who loved what he loved, and he was a little bit, yeah, he was a little bit trifling, and he was mm-hmm. a little bit sort of, play, he was playful, and he was not so serious all the time, and I feel like we actually don't see black men like that in on general. stage, period. Never mind, you know? <laughs> Just period. Yes. You know? That was important. It was important to me that the characters be be round, multidimensional. So, yes, he's free. He's in love with an American ether. Because <laughs> I don't know that that exists. What his what he's following that freedom, yeah. and um, I do think that there's a consequence to it. So, the freer he is, the more devastating it is. For Abasiyama. Yeah. So that's probably also why he he begins to look like a villain. But he's simply living. He's not doing this to her in order to push her down into the sand. He's doing it so he can taste a little sun. Yeah. You know, and no, we don't get to see men like that. We don't, black men like that, African men like that. We don't get to see them be sexy. He was. And he was, I think he's sexy. He's so sexy. He's so sexy. We don't get to see them uh, that level of smart, like disciple. What it is to be that persistent and ambitious. Well, we'll talk about disciple in a minute. (laughs) That, that. mm. We don't get to see them tasting the way you understand other people to taste, dancing, yeah. singing, loving, and also maybe hurting. Hurting somebody else because they love something, something else. so much. Right. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. we do get to see Africans do is be in war and hold a Kalashnikov. <laughs> That's what we get to see. And suffer and cry. We, and suffering. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know, like flies in the eyes. We see that. Yeah. We don't see what the dancing is. Yeah. And then how, what human on human pain looks like as opposed to war and famine. Yeah. And ogre on pain, right? These characters that are, that are essentially made into beads. To be monsters, right. you know, kind of just slashing through life. Yeah, you know, I loved how sexy. I love the fact that he was always pawing her and was trying to like always touch her. And I just love that. It's connected to listen. African men, I think, are some of the sexiest. They don't get to be sexy. Yeah, and then you and Abasiyama liked it when he kissed her now. She oh she did. She really liked she it. She pretended sometimes like she didn't. Oh, like but he was she liked it. Every her. once in a while he'd be like, No. <laughs> like come here. She likes yeah. she likes it. There is a sex, there's a sensuality, there is there is a love. Have you been to Nigeria? Once. 
when I was young, I was 12 or 13 years old. And I stayed for a little while on... Uh, and what tribe are you? I'm Ibibio. Okay. So I'm Yoruba. Mm -hmm. We're from Southwest Nigeria. Maybe we are Southeast Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And so did your parents come after the Biafran War? Uh, yeah, they did. They both came after that war. And is this something that they had experienced or just talked about in your home when you guys um, were growing up? Not talked about. And I don't even know experienced. Um, the Biafran War, that war is not the war. It's not talked about very much. Mm, no. And so... Um, I always wonder, I sometimes ask, and then they'll just look at me and smile a little bit. Mm. Ah, no, it's okay. Everything is fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this is not, oh, in fact, if you look at the people who are talking about the Biafran War, they're people who are more my age mates. Mm, absolutely. Trying to go back and go, what happened? Where we live, the Biafran War did not encroach, as far as I know. Like, Abba was bad with the Biafran War. My people are further in mm. so I don't know if they saw the war in that way but I'm sure it was in the air in some way I think it's like a major fault I mean I definitely know that it's such a fault line I think our generation you know I know that it's a fault line sometimes in relationships with friends right mm -hmm. I'm Yoruba and I have Igbo friends who have very strong feelings about mm -hmm. the war and we have very different understandings of I what happened what? we have a completely different understanding and it's almost like it's a topic that you don't talk about no. because it can develop into war war like world war three basically inter like, inter yeah yeah it's like, personal. yeah absolutely yeah. because people you know i remember reading chinua achebe's there was a country yes which i i wanted to read i needed to read to really have an understanding but you know my uncle saw me reading it and said that book is not what happened that book is not what there happened. are many people who told me the same thing I was that this reading is it. not the truth yes uh, and, and my people are close to Igbo land. Yeah. And so I don't I don't know how my family per se aligned, but I do have a lot of Igbo friends. And so I, I find myself actually reading that and going, oh, this must be a truth. To then turn around and read Uwem Akpan, and he had a northern account, and it, it just sounded so different. And I don't know. I, war, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can tell who is right within war. I don't think you can. So I don't think you can. Mm -mm. And I think that, you know, and I think about it, I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of black Americans and, and white Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when white Americans say, well, I my relatives didn't own slaves, I don't understand what you're talking about. And... People say that. You see my face. I yeah, no, I see your face. But in some ways, it's it's. I think I think it can also be similar, right? Because people have very strong, powerful feelings about history mm -hmm. and things that have happened. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't around. We weren't around, but that I think that's something that I I wonder about, and that's what for me play three is run boy run, which is I think my most technically difficult play, but I am looking at the Biafran War and where potential illness born out of war becomes mm. tradition like what mental that, illness you mean yes mm. or or um even even a subtlest fear the fear of war becomes the tradition that you pass on to your children and then all of a sudden myself who has never seen it and has only lived within an american structure for real 
is exhibiting going oh I think I aligned this way where did I get that from what is this fear from um, when you then, say you align which way? What do you like Maybe I go, maybe I'm reading Chinua Achebe and going, ah, oh, this is my truth. Mm. This is the truth. This is what it was. And then you go, but where did, where did those sympathies for me come from? Mm. As all of a sudden, perhaps, even though nothing has been said out loud, I'm picking up and passing on something out of this war. Right. Something is like transmuting through me. And so I wonder about that. I also wonder about what PTSD is because that's what I did love about Chinua Achebe's. There was a country where he talks about mental illness. After that war, there were people walking around shouting into the air, you know, and um, does that get passed down? We don't have a legible way to understand what this was and it's been coded in so much silence. What are the trickle effects? Nigeria right now, in many ways, our tent within the country, the tension within. I mean, what I always wonder is we are all black people, mm -hmm. right? Anyone knowing nothing about Nigeria will see you and I and say, oh, we're both Nigerians. Mm -hmm. And then the next question I ask you or when you say your name is, I am trying to figure out who yeah. you are, yeah. where do you fit mm -hmm. in, where do you come from, right? Mm -hmm. So that is all connected to this. Yeah. Or, okay, so you're not as you're close to me as I thought you were uh, when I okay. met you. Southwest, southeast, right? East, Understood. east, mid. You know that having to place each person that you mm -hmm. meet. I, who have lived in Houston, Texas, and in Massachusetts, I'm placing. Right. <laughs> Somebody walks up to me and says uh, a name like Etuk, and I go, "Okay, South eat my people." Yeah. Someone says a name like. Chokuri, and I'm like, oh, nada. Okay, so a little higher yeah. up. You know, I'm yeah. Houston. Yeah. And I, like I said, was born in Houston, Texas, and lived in Massachusetts. But there's so much I'm other still, identities yeah. within that. And what I also love is Ibibio culture is, you know, within the Nigerian context, it's not, it's not one that we get to see very much. I mean, no. I think the story of Nigeria is Yorubas, Igbos, Aousas, mm -hmm. you know, those are the three main tribes those in Nigeria, the tribes. but there's 200, over 200 tribes mm -hmm. within the country, mm -hmm. but really we talk about three. We talk about three. So that must be interesting for you to share some of that culture within the context of this play. I think for me, it is a point of pride. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we exist. That is my point of pride. <laughs> we exist. Mm. My, my people too have a culture. Um, we have a language and while you've only heard of three, there's so many more. And it's part of what is beautiful about Nigeria. There are many, there are many of us. And, um, there is, who I forget, I forget. There is a playwright who, from Nigeria, who wrote in 15 different languages. Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm trying, I'm going to struggle to remember this name. Femi? Um, I'm serving as artistic director for the Now Africa Festival. Okay. And I did a lot of reading oh, wow. of African plays. And I was reading this particular person's play, and it was set in a leper's hospital. Hmm. Right now, my brain has been so watered down with writing that I'm not remembering even the name of the play, but I know it was in a leper's hospital and 15 different languages happening are weaving through the play are weaving through the play you understand in a leper this leper hospital 
the different kinds of Nigerians that they are. There were languages that I was like, ah, and people that I was like, who, who are this? they? Yeah. Oh, wow. And then you get a map and go, oh, Lord, they live three miles away. <laughs> and they speak a completely different language. What is the Now Africa Festival? Um, it's a festival that's um, curated by myself. I, I think you might know um, Hart Ngazi, uh, Ayangu, there's Erin Cherry, Chichi Ayangu, and Bashir Shalebo. And it's a festival um, where we find plays from all over Africa and actually showcase them so that for people like myself, what happened was I woke up one day, I wanted to read something that was not fiction and I wanted to read an African play, and I realized the only person I knew was Wally Shaka. <laughs> Which then led me down the philosophical path that I was writing as if I was the beginning. Mm. Like, I was writing as if I am the only African writer. And I was like, that has to be a fallacy. That is not true. And I have to find them. And so the Now Africa Festival became, like, was founded on finding those manuscripts, some of which are being lost at a rate of speed that made me one day cry. Hmm. You cannot get some of these. What like, do you mean they're being lost? So, um, I was trying to get my hands on some plays, and they only exist at the Schomburg. If they do exist, they'll be there. You can. I can't take them out. You got to. You have to like. You can only photocopy a third for copyright issues. And then if they're not there, then to find them, they're $600 to buy because they're out of print and or some of them have not been translated yet or ever. It just... And these are coming from throughout the continent or from specific countries? Okay. Throughout the continent. You know, um, I had the, the place that we had a harder time finding plays was Central Africa, mm. but there's so many plays. There's so many plays. I maybe we did not get our hands on a hundredth of them. When did you know you wanted to be a playwright? <laughs> um, or did you start as an actor? I started as an actor. Okay. Uh, look, artistry has been something else. I I actually thought that I was going to be some form of a lawyer, and I was studying the underdevelopment of um, third world countries. Okay. I wanted to go and do some work in West Africa. Okay. I didn't work out. That's not actually what my heart beat for. And then I started singing opera at Wellesley. Okay. And then I got into ACT. I did the summer training congress at ACT, and I went to grad school for acting. My my mother and father, bless their hearts, were like, what is happening with my child? <laughs> uh, I do that. When did you tell them that you were not interested in being a lawyer and you wanted to <laughs> sing opera and become an actor? And how did that conversation go? My mother ribs me on this till this day was she bought classes for law school like the, for um Elsa yes for, thank you for Elsa I'm a lawyer so I'm a Nigerian who did become a lawyer <laughs> and then said what am I doing that's another <sighs> conversation <laughs> so she was like my daughter needs classes she bought you Elsa classes yes so I was in test well and while I was doing that <laughs> While I was doing that, I was also on the sly applying to grad schools. For acting. For acting. And it's not until I heard that I was like going to go to auditions that I told my mom. So I was like, you know, this, I don't think I want to do this. Um, I've applied to acting schools and I need a ride to Yale. Because I'm going to go auditions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you take me? Can you take from me from Massachusetts? Yale. Yes. Yeah, I need to go to Yale. And she was so confused. But then there's also the beauty of hearing Yale. Yeah, and she heard Yale, and she's like, lights. And then I got into ACT, and that really went. She's like, what is happening? Mm. Because I chose it. Because she was like, what is ACT? Did she even know what it was? She knew because I went to the summer training congress. But the difference between going, I think that this is a hobby for my daughter, to realizing my daughter's choosing this as a potential career. Uh, And then I got here to New York and I was acting, but I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't making good. I found I was going in for some African parts and I felt like I wasn't African enough for those Mm. African parts. I don't know. So, so not to stop you, but you graduated ACT, you mm-hmm. moved to New York, yes. and you jump into auditions. Yes, I got ahead. And did an you agent. feel prepared? Did you you had an agent before you got here? How did you get an agent? Showcase. Okay, so you did a showcase when you arrived. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I got a New York agent. Okay. At that time, there were African plays going on, and it felt like I wasn't African enough. What were these African plays? Ruined was oh. happening. You mean there was a African play? I'm trying to be politically nice. You don't have to be. <laughs> Nobody is listening to this little podcast. Trust me. Okay. Well, then Ruined was out. Okay. And I got called in a lot for Salima. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I always did well, but I never looked right. That was part mm. of the feedback. I'd, and I don't know whether it's because I actually look lusher. And maybe they were going for an, an African aesthetic that is some arbitrary thing. But I, no, I, it was frustrating. So you went in several times. Several times, because Ruin at that time was being done everywhere. Yeah. Regionally, New York, it was everywhere. And then also there were just issues with my type. I'm actually, in life, I might find, be a little like rough punch, but when I'm acting, I, I'm actually quite sweet. You are. Send me in for and really and funny. Christmas Carol. And really funny. I saw you in um, in Hollywood Dreams. You're hilarious. Exactly. People wanted me to do Effie from Dreamgirls. I'm like, that is actually not it. <laughs> I can't even see it. It's yeah. Not it. And so because of that, I started uh, writing and uh, like so. angry black woman who's gonna take your house from you. That like that's what was what they. I think that was part of maybe because of a. When you look stereotypically, go, that's what it is, but that's not my essence at all. Yeah. And did you ever get called for roles that were like kind of like the kind of stereotypical black American, oh, like I, rolling eye and, oh, and snapping? That thing. sassy black girl? Yeah. Oh, I know those sassy black oh, girls. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I got them. Okay. Because mm-hmm. one, you know, I minored in theater in college, and one of the reasons I was like, I could never be an actress because I can't do that. I don't, I'm, that's just not who I am. It's not my person. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I can, I can do it because I was trained to do it. At a certain point, though, you go, "Why am I doing this?" That, yeah. I like. It was never an issue of skill. I just—it's tiring. It's boring, and I wanted to also write the Africa I knew. So I started writing the Africa I knew. And I thought that I would act in those, and that quickly went away. So you started writing because you wanted to write roles for yourself initially. I thought so. And and I also have to be brutally honest. I, that was part of it. Another part was, 
you know, I was in the middle of my own crisis, you know, where I'm looking at myself going, I don't understand my, my body, my person, my, who am I? What is my family? What are my friends? What is this society? I was writing to actually heal some breakages too. Mm. Um, so, and those were very individual. I mean, each of these questions, each of the plays has a central question. So the first play I wrote, The Grove, the big question was, what is identity? Because I was struggling with mine, mm. you know? And I thought I would act in it going, it's perfect. It's my crisis. It's going to be, I'll write a woman in that who's having a crisis that's like mine. And I will play her. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Once I read it, once I wrote it and then read it, and went, I have want nothing to do with this. Somebody else will, do <laughs> it. will play this. Mm-hmm. So, the he that you said you wrote this to heal the questions, the, the the sort of places that you needed to heal in yourself. And do you feel like in that play, in the writing of the Grove, do you feel like you healed that, or you answered that question, "What is identity?" And if so, what is what is identity? No, I didn't answer it. I all of these questions, I have a all of these plays have a central question. I've never been able to answer them. All of these plays, I'm trying to heal a something or understand a something. And I, I get closer on the road to, I will never say I'm sutured up and everything is okay. Like the Grove did not help me understand what my identity was. It helped me understand that my identity was a nuanced, complex thing, which then opens up a whole world of other issues. So it's learning into the next problem, into the next learning, into the next. That's what I, that's what ended up happening. And I guess healing does occur in that, but it's not as fast as you know, it might seem. It's yeah, it's not. I thought. I think I was simple even with myself and thinking if I write it I will heal myself and everything is okay like perfect therapy or something no it's not like that and what 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 about the role in the growth made you say oh no I don't want to play that someone else has to do this um it was at I the grove I wrote very close to my bone mm. um who is the character in the book what's it called Ariaga is the character in the grove okay. And who is she? Close to me. She's um, a woman who's trying to figure out uh, what it means to be both Nigerian and American. And in the two cultures, identity can function in a different way. You know, one Nigerian has more of a compound culture, and so the family's trying to recreate that. Whereas in um, uh, America, it can be very singular. I love you, therefore, because I love you, that's what I choose. Whereas over here, it might be, I love you, we love you, so we choose you. Different, different paradigms. And so... Um, and it can feel schizophrenic, mm-hmm. at least in my own life, I feel like it can, it can feel both schizophrenic and also they are competing actively. Sometimes yeah. they can't live they together at odds. The, the odds all the time. Yeah. Um, and what do you think the central question in Sojourners is? Can you build home by leaving home? Can you actually refashion yourself by leaving yourself? Mm. And I think I lean towards no. 
Interesting. So there are two lines in the play that's connected to this that I thought, and I think they're Abbasiyama who says both of them. She says, something good must come from this place, right? That's and disciple. Disciple says that. And then the line, we were not sent here for this. Disciple. Disciple says this. Mm-hmm. So it's like, these are all things that, see, it's so interesting that I was writing them down in the dark, mm-hmm. but these are all things that Abbasiyama would have said. Like this, you know, would have said to Ukpong. Would have said to Ukpong. Exactly. And like trying to convince him it's to like. It's the thing that as the woman, she's trying to fight to say yeah. to her husband and doesn't know how to because of whatever patriarchy is. It's the thing that he can say. And when he says it, if she were around to hear it, that's exactly, that's exactly. Yeah. He's on the right path. And that's why they were, well, they seemed like they were kindred spirits, but... Mm-hmm. They know. seem. I mean, cycle. <laughs> and we'll else. find out in Run, Boy, Run, or we'll find out in the you fourth play you what happens it. between the two of them. You find out all throughout two, three, four, and five. Mm. It become it is a toxicity, mm. whatever happens between them. So let's talk about the practicalities of making art, mm-hmm. especially in this very like expensive city that mm-hmm. we live in. Um, so you work as a teacher as well. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the two? And do you, in terms of, do, are you working nine to five as a teacher? Like practical, like in the weeds, like how, how are we making it work as an artist? You know what? I think it also depends on the time period. Like when I first moved here, I was very dependent on friends actually. Um, there were some friends I was sleeping on couches as I'm figuring out mm-hmm. how to be an artist. And of course... So when you first moved to New York, which is which was... When did you move here? 2009. Okay. You know, like there was a time where it's like we're in... Um, I'm in a, in a sublet, like a cra- like crazy living conditions <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Um, there was probably three or four years where uh, it was hard to be my friend actually uh, as I'm working two jobs and I'm working at night I don't know and what were you doing I, as a teacher I was working freelance in foster care systems substitute teaching in um, private and charter schools I was uh, doing summer teaching programs I also worked sample sales mm-hmm. and was doing retail I and you're doing that no, nothing pays um, a lot of money so, you know, it's like begging, mom, can you give me a hundred dollars here? Friend, can you please take me out to dinner? Or can I come over and maybe eat a little something over here? And when did you really begin to feel like this was starting to pay off a little bit? Mm, 2013. Wow, so four years. Four years. Four years. And in that four years, did you have any periods of what am I doing? This is not working. I need to give this up. This is crazy. Or was it very clear to you that this was going to work? I don't, I think I had moments of, I I need to give this up, but I, what was stronger was I have to complete. This is the one thing that I found this sort of creative, this this creation artistry is the one thing that I found that keeps me engaged and feeling um, alive and purposeful. So even though it is hard, even to this day, if I needed to, I would work four jobs and, well, I guess I got to let this house go. To do it. To do it. It's that important Mm -hmm. to you. So one thing that I have a couple playwright friends Mm -hmm. who are black women Mm -hmm. 
And one challenge that they've had, and I don't know if you have, so this is the question, is getting their plays produced mm-hmm. by theaters. Mm-hmm. In that, then there are you know, particular women I'm thinking about. Um, but, you know, theaters wanting to tell black stories in a particular way. Very particular way. You know, and if you don't fit that, then no one's really interested mm-hmm. in telling your story. It is true. So, there, you know, there are plays that... Um, not to name names, but there are plays oftentimes that are woeful, right? Suffering black people <laughs> tend to be something that you see a lot in American and theater. And we applaud and clap and produce. And, 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 yeah, and suffering Africans, really. Yeah. So do, have you found that to be a challenge in any way in terms of theaters not wanting to produce the work or wanting to produce it and wanting you to make, I don't know, particular changes or anything like that? I do believe in a higher power. And I think I have been inordinately blessed to have found some home bases that are not trying to shift me away from me. I don't think that that is often the case. I think that it is rare, and I try not to take that for granted. I also try to stay aware within where where I am, like whatever producing house I am, that I maintain my sense of integrity um, because it is easy to lose if you're not careful. Um, it is hard to get produced. And um, I can name two companies that took a shot on me and I'm an actor first. Um, so, yes. And I don't say that, I don't actually say that lightly. I loved um, the note from their artistic director, which is she she quoted your application, I guess, to them. Mm -hmm. You you submitted the play to them, Mm -hmm. I presume. And I'm going to read your words um, because they really, she said that they called out to her. It certainly called out to me. And I want you to sort of go in a little deep with them. That your greatest desire, I'm going to torture you with it, with my peculiar pen, is to tell the stories I know to be true. I will tell these stories to a world that has never known them, or tell these stories to a world that has forgotten them, or tell the story to a world that has looked them dead in the eye and sauntered past in ignorance. So what is your peculiar pen? I am Nigerian and American. I come from a people who are extraordinarily educated and extraordinarily ambitious. I, my people have known suffering, but not the kind of suffering I see when I turn on my television and watch wars in Africa or, or it's been a very human suffering. Um, and I, I want to variegate the Africas we see. Mm-hmm. And I want to put on stage an African, on an American stage, <laughs> an African authentic, because Africans are here. We are here. And we are helping build this country, whether you want to, to own that or not. We are here. 
we are Nigerian, we are Ethiopian, we are Tanzanian, we are Moroccan, we are here. And thus, if we are here, it is fair to say we belong on a stage in the same way with so much nuance and so much love. And so my peculiar pen is to write radically, authentically Africans within America. That's it. Hmm. And what does it, so like that idea of, of sort of, I mean, that is so political to me, mm-hmm. so powerful. Um, Inherently political. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I think part of why I was so moved and <laughs> so generous is, and also I think about when I watched, um, what is this, uh, what is this, uh, Andrew Dosumu's movie? Peace uh, No Nation? No, 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 no. This is The Wedding. Oh, God, why am I... Uh, the- Wedding. The one with um, Dar- the woman from Walking Dead. What's oh, it? Mother George? Yeah, Mother of George. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I started sobbing. And I'm like, why am I crying? Why am I crying? Like, this is just a movie showing a Nigerian wedding. Why am I crying? I've been to 50 million Nigerian weddings. And I, you know, the, the scene opened up and I started weeping. Mm-hmm. And and I think the same thing with Abasiyama. And at the end, just looking at her with her baby and the tears started coming. And she reminded me so much of my mother and what she must have felt like. Mm-hmm. And then the sense that, you know, I rarely see Africans I recognize mm-hmm. on screen or in the theater. So usually I, I often laugh at the war things. People are like, why are you laughing? Because I don't know anybody like this. This is insane. Okay. This, um, you know, the, the Christian channels, like, um, what's it like called? Like TCN? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. They start. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they are hilarious. So they have the infomercials like give two dollars so this African, African child can live another minute. I my mother and I will we will be watching it dying with laughter. And then I think it was her who said it, it was like those are images of war. They keep recycling images. Like where it looks like that. Yeah. Actually what like, they're as foreign to you and I as they are to the American person sitting yeah. and watching <laughs> Which is why you sit there and you laugh. But then it is not a laughing matter. No, it's not. When that has become the representation of all of Africa. Yeah. Going bad is that. Yeah. I just, it's not, it's not, it's actually not true. So, so what advice would you have for a young budding artist, African immigrant, Nigerian immigrant, child of Nigerian immigrants or otherwise, who's sort of struggling with this tension of, you know, I could be a lawyer, I could be a doc, I could, you know, or I can pursue this little tiny nugget of hope and dream. What advice would you have? Because I imagine there are moments where you thought maybe I should have gone to law school or maybe you never thought that. Um, I did, when it comes to like monetary things going, I know that my life could be financially far easier. Um, so that's when I'll have it when I want to buy a dress, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's when I'm like, you know, I maybe should have, um, but my advice, that's hard. What my advice would be, yes. To go into whatever the hope and the dream is, 
to surround yourself with people who believe and trust in your talent, because I definitely had that, to maintain a rigor with yourself, because that's one of the things that falls away fast as you enter into creating your own world, is your rigor with your creation. You mean just your discipline? Yeah, your discipline, your... Your own self-accountability to your own dream. Mm, I like that. Your self-accountability to your own dream. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, And a willingness to sit within discomfort and fear. my, My advice, my advice is yes to go. Surround yourself. That's it. It's broken and jagged advice because I think the path itself is broken and jagged. So, mm. best I can do right now. <laughs> well, that's pretty. So, I like that. Sit within your fear and your discomfort mm-hmm. and just keep going. And keep going. Once you say you're going to do it, if you can. Try not to turn back. It's a, it's a long game. So thank you so much. This Thank's was such a pleasure. Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.